You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. I just want to give you an update on uh, the reveal study before we get into the Word of God this morning. Um, We're doing reasonably well, especially if you're female. Uh, We have six, probably two-thirds of the respondents are female, and feel free to jab any male around you and get them involved as well. And it's really interesting, um, the 9 a.m. service, which has fewer attendants than you do, actually has 45% of those who responded, and you, with the largest attendance, has 27% responding. So there's the challenge. Please contribute and bring your numbers up. Uh, The other thing of interest is that 414 people have started, which is a great number because that's about half of who we are, but only 285 have finished. So we have a a completion rate of 69%. And I'm not sure why. It could be the question about lead pastor, and because we don't have one, you're not quite sure what to put down. Uh, I don't care because it doesn't matter. Those are not the questions that we're going to focus on because we don't have a lead pastor. But if you can just fill out those however you want, use your imagination, and we will get the rest of the survey information from you. If there's other places that are putting you in the ditch, phone the office or or email us so that we can say, okay, here's what you do to finish this thing off, and we just appreciate you doing that so much. Now our text this morning. I I hope if you're pregnant... uh, and you're looking for names for boys that you paid close attention to. If not, uh, Carol can come and read it again so that you can get a few gems for your child. Now, you might be familiar with the running line of jokes of how many people does it take to change a light bulb in various vocations and people groups are thrown under the bus, all in jest, of course, if we're capable of doing that anymore without catering to someone who's just looking to be offended, right? For example, I read one not long ago, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Just one. But the light bulb needs to want to change very badly. (laughs) No, it's probably not fair to throw others under the bus. It's probably best to look at ourselves We need to have a sense of humor about ourselves sometimes, don't we? The answer is yes. So how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? That depends on your denomination. (laughs) Charismatics, it only takes one because they've already got their hands in the air. Reformed church folks, none. The lights will go on and off at predestined times. Baptists, which are probably closest to us, at least 15. One to change the bulb, three committees to, choo- to uh, approve the decision, and another one to decide what will be eaten to celebrate all of that. And my favorite is the Amish. How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? What's a light bulb? Right? <laughs> of course, what we're focusing on in this series has nothing to do with changing light bulbs but rather the building of a broken wall. 
And there are lessons from Nehemiah's building of a broken wall that we can learn from as we seek to move forward as a church by God's grace and guidance and build a Christ-honoring future. And so the natural question that comes up, if you're willing, is how can we be involved or how can I contribute to the future of the E-Free Church here? The way that I'm going to answer this is by drawing themes and observations from this chapter that recounts all sorts of people who contribute in all sorts of ways to the building of the walls of Jerusalem. There are actually 45 sections that are mentioned as being rebuilt, which is a feat of remarkable recruitment and coordination on Nehemiah's part. And just for perspective, uh, the reporting of the chapter actually goes in a counterclockwise direction. It begins with the Sheep Gate, which would be at 11 o'clock your time, and does section after section and finishes off at the Sheep Gate if we were to put a clock over top of a map. But let's begin where the chapter does, because we're going to find four ways in which we can contribute to a transition at E-Free. The chapter begins at the Sheep Gate. It was different than any of the other gates in that it was close to the temple, which means that the animals that were going to be sacrificed would all enter through that gate and proceed from there. And from the time they entered that gate, it was considered to be a part of the holy process of sacrifice. And as a result, the, the, uh, the priests not only built it, they consecrated it. And in consecrating it, they did what they were born to do. If you get Levi, one of the sons of Israel, he had three sons, and you have the sons of Conan in the family of Levi, and all of the boys were destined to be priests. So they were born priests. They were conceived as priests before they were ever given the tools to do that. I know that it's in vogue now for soon-to-be fathers to talk to the, the bellies of their pregnant wives. And I can imagine a priest talking to the womb of his soon-to-be-giving-birth wife and hoping that it's a boy and saying to his son, son, someday you are going to wear a robe, you are going to offer up sacrifices, you are going to put them on the altar, you're going to breathe in way too much secondhand smoke, and you're going to represent the people to God and God to the people, and you're going to love it. So before they were even born, the boys were called to be priests. And then as they grew up, they were given the tools and the education in order to do it well. So what we see here is men acting according to and in a way to fulfill their calling. And it says, in then Eliashib, the high priest, who, by the way, was the grandson of the guy who was responsible for the building of the temple, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors, and they did it all as a means of fulfilling their calling. Now, if we take this and apply it to ourselves, it may seem to release all but called and ordained pastors, gifted church staff, called missionaries, and elected church officials from having any part 
in the project itself. That is, until we notice the accounts of all of the other people who were involved, who contributed to the wall despite it being way outside of something that they were trained to do. For example, you look at verse 8, and we have the report of Uziel, the son of Her Haiah, now you know why I got Carol to read, of the goldsmiths who made repairs. In verse 31, after him, Melchiah, one of the goldsmiths, carried out repairs. Goldsmiths building walls? Let me explain what they did so you can see why their presence there was so strange. A goldsmith's sweet spot is the smelting of gold in order to purify it, the making of fine jewelry, perhaps overlaying uh, objects of the temple with the purest gold that they could find. But here we have an account of them building walls. And unless we're talking about the golden walls of the Cave of Wonders in the movie Aladdin, they are fully and completely out of their element in erecting a wall that should be able to withstand an enemy attack. I mean, you think about it, they had a keen eye for dross, the impurities that would rise to the top in the smelting process. They had fine hands that were able to make delicate necklaces and intricate rings. But here, they were using their keen eye to cut along a pencil line of a big piece of lumber, using their fine motor skills to make bricks and maneuver sharp stones and, and sling mud. Why on earth would they volunteer to help? because they knew that they had to put their primary skills on hold to accomplish a larger task. And in that, there is at least a reasonable prob probability that because of their lack of experience with rough-hewn wood and slinging of sharp stones, that their hands may have got bashed and cut, and they may have forever lost their ability to touch and be able to make delicate jewelry. But the task of transitioning Jerusalem from a shambles to a strong city that was distinctive was more important to them than anything else, and so they contributed in a way that was way outside of their training. Then there's a second group that contributed that's kind of a mystery to me. We read of them as well in verse 8. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they, probably the perfumers' guild, were restoring Jerusalem as far as the broad road. Perfumers, what on earth would they do? Today, they try to create evocative smells that are put in fancy bottles that are advertised in expensive commercials that you have to pay a king's ransom to buy and then put on. But what did they do back then? Well, from reading, it would appear as if they would take herbs and spices, both local and foreign, things that were rare and things that were common, and would put them all together in a way and in a time and perhaps with some heat, that would even infuse them into oil to make incredible fragrances. 
made even more incredible in a time before underarm deodorant existed. I personally figure that they created Old Spice. <laughs> only back then it was known as Young Spice. There's only one way it could have become Old Spice is if it came through time. And yet apparently these perfumers had a key role in creating joy. Solomon observed in the first line of Proverbs 27.9 that oil and perfume make the heart glad. Something about the power and the beauty of the scents concocted would refresh one's spirit. Like hitting the showers after changing in a very stinky hockey locker room. You just hold the bar up and so much better. Perhaps it was like spa day, which I've never experienced, never want to. Spa day condensed down into five minutes. With the, with the smell of fresh baking and the wafting of the neighbor's barbecue over the fence when they're having steak can do to your brain, the perfumer's scents could do to your spirit. Yet here they are, mixing mud to restore the wall instead of magical scents to restore one's soul. So what does this combination of goldsmiths and perfumers turn carpenters and bricklayers and mudslingers teach us about building our future? Well, and this is a important even though it may not be profound, for the sake of our project, for the sake of moving forward, you can contribute even though what you contribute may not be in the areas of your skills or your training. With no smelting and no smell, goldsmiths and perfumers alike repaired what ended up being a big chunk of wall, even though it was not in their wheelhouse at all to do it which means that you can have a meaningful part of a transition into a future as well, even if your abilities are far afield from being able to transition a church, okay? Now we see another way in which you can contribute by noticing a third group that to me seems unusual in this chapter. We read of them at least in verses 15, 16, and 18. I'll read 15 and 16, and then you can tell me the group. Shalom, the son of Kolhose, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. Verse 16, and after him, Nehemiah, different Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, official of the half district of Bethzer, made repairs as far as the point opposite the tombs of David. What's the group? Officials, officials. So what's so weird about them being on the list? Officials seldom jump in to do manual labor. Have you noticed that? I mean, if we're talking about a groundbreaking ceremony with a golden shovel and a suit and tie and shiny shoes and about that much dirt, they're all over it. If we're talking about cutting a ribbon for a new building, with cameras going and, and film crews there. They're all over that too. But if we're talking about mixing mud and stuff and slinging stones, it's more like 
Wow, would you look at the time? Got an appointment, gotta go. That's more typical of officials. But here were officials, some of whom were in charge of half a city, some of whom were in charge of a district. They had to organize things. They had to solve interpersonal problems with people. They had to make sure that there was clean running water during the day and because the walls were broken, tight security throughout the night, taking extra time to build the walls. It may have taken them away from their families. It may have created a, a multitasking nightmare. But they demonstrated that sometimes you lead best when you sacrifice most. Sometimes you lead best when you sacrifice most. Now, granted, and please catch this, they knew it wasn't forever. It was for a season, but for that season they were willing to take on more. How can we contribute well to build a good future for Lethbridge Free Through sacrificial service with no regard for our position, and in addition to your current responsibilities for a time with no regard for your position and in addition to current responsibilities. And we have a church full of leaders, leaders of homes and home group leaders, leaders of ministries that we've seen examples of serving a lot. And for a time, this may mean taking on even more responsibility for a season in order to build a brighter future for this church. And there is one official whose sacrifice is just above and beyond everybody else's. You know, so, sometimes it's not the type of work you do, it's the location in which you do it that makes all the difference. I remember being on tour with a, uh, some kind of a musical group in Manitoba and a couple of the, the students were staying at uh, the house of a guy who owned uh, a hog operation. And he wanted to show us his operation. So I, okay, I'm, I was a pastor in rural Saskatchewan for a while, and guys would bring me out to their farm and give me the, you know, the pig boots that are up to your knees, and you go in there and slosh around, and they show you their hogs and... I understood, I think it took me about one second to understand why God did not want the Jews to eat pork after I saw that. But they would show me their operation and just so proud, which they should be because most of them were really good. And it was with this enthusiasm and total naivete that we walked towards the hog operation. And I noticed that there was two doors to get in I thought, that's odd. That, that's kind of like a nuclear reactor where you come out the first door and take off the, the suit and get decontaminated before you can leave the building. Yeah, whatever. Walk through the first door and a little bit of a smell. Walk through the second door and I was overcome. Thousands, a thousand probably, a thousand hogs in this room snorting and making noise. And the smell, oh my word. Uh, my nose was burning, my eyes were watering from the, the acidic air of manure and urine all mixed together. And 
Every time I breathed, I wondered, is my breath going to smell like this for the rest of my life? <laughs> right? Oh. We were only in there for a minute, but I could not wear those clothes for the rest of that tour, permeated with this invisible, ever-present odor of pig waste. I may have even thrown them out because they might have had the power to transfer to other clothes. It was that bad. Had I known then what I know now, it would have been, look at the time, got a meeting, got to go, right? With that as a context, listen to verse 14. Malchiah, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth Hakaram, repaired the refuse gate and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. For clarity, that is the number one and number two gate where all of the bodily functions of that city would flow south right through where he was working. And just for perspective, when Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem in 538, between 42 and 50,000 people went with him. Okay? And they would have married and had more kids, so there was more than that now. And then Ezra goes back with another 2,000 who may have married and had kids. And at this point, it doesn't even matter how many went back with Nehemiah because half of the current population of Lethbridge was in that city and all of their stuff was pouring through that dung gate, the refuse gate, day and night, especially during the commercial breaks of hockey games. Now you can imagine the statements that would come out around this operation. From Malchiah, for example, I hereby decree as, a, as an official of this city that no one shall go number one or number two for the next month until I have completed my repairs. Good luck with that. Statements from his wife that we can actually repeat. Please, please tell me you didn't volunteer for this. Please tell me that you didn't pull the short straw. Please tell me why are you doing this alone? Well, I know why you're doing this alone. Can you imagine how doing those repairs would gross you out without even looking down? And then they have, he has to bend down and repair all around the bottom of that gate. And they didn't have rubber gloves. They didn't have hazmat suits. I'm only guessing about Old Spice, pretty sure, but only guessing. But I'm pretty sure that the mudroom shower was invented by his wife. He said, listen, you've never heard of this, but we're going to build a shower room outside of the house. When you come home from work, you drop your sandals and you drop your drawers and you take a shower, take as much time as you want, but do not come to the table to eat until you smell like Young Spice, right? Bottom line, he agreed to work in conditions that were absolutely disgusting. In a situation that would make you constantly gag. But because the project was worth it, he endured the stench and the filth to move forward. 
It was the nastiest job of the whole chapter. Yet despite how repugnant and how repulsive it might have been, he felt that the project was way more important than his queasiness and sensibilities. And I'm just asking you to fill out a survey. <laughs> right? No, that wasn't in my notes. He did the grossest job, and he did it all alone. Now, obviously, we can't make a direct application to our transition because it's got nothing to do with building walls around sewers. Nevertheless, we must recognize that there are people in our congregation who have taken on tasks over the last three years that would naturally repulse them, who have made decisions because they were the right decisions to make no matter how gross it may have made them feel to have to do that. Some have been unfairly dumped on by those who don't know what they don't know but don't care because they're going to blab anyway. You know, have one half of, or think they have one half of the story and feel justified in dumping on others without the full information. I mean, that's, that's not only bad practice. That's not very smart either. We have people in this church who have contributed to the future of this church by wading through stuff they would not wish on their worst enemies. And they did it for your future. How do you contribute to the building of this church in the future? You do the work that needs to be done sometimes despite how repulsive it might be, how offensive to you it might be. You do the work that needs to be done and you pay the price for that. Now there's, there's a good chance that you're pushing back in your mind right now. Why would I want to do something that is outside of my skill set? Why would I want to add to my already full plate more responsibility? Why would I want to take on something that has the mock and stink to it that's sometimes a part of a transition? And I get that. I totally get why you would ask why, because I've been in pastoral leadership for a long time. There's a final group scattered throughout this chapter that I would like to draw our attention to because I think they give us the reason why. We see them in at least verses 23, 28, 29, and 30, and they show us why we would sacrifice and sometimes even get dirty. I'll just read verses 23 and 28. Verse 23, and after them, Benjamin and Hashab carried out repairs in front of their house. Verse 28 says, above the horse gate, the priests there they are again, out of their element, carried out repairs, each in front of his house. And the phrase that stands out in both of these and others is that these people made repairs in front of where they were living, in front of their houses. I suppose we could see this as really self-serving. I'll absolutely fortify the wall, especially the part that will go in front of my house and protect my financial investment. But if that was their selfish motives, given the nature of the sacrifice in the chapter, 
I don't think they would have even been included. Perhaps a better way to understand this is to say that they sacrificed outside of their comfort zones because they wanted to protect their families and work to ensure a bright future for those they loved. They wanted to protect their families, to work to ensure a bright future for those whom they loved. And here the application is an arrow to the heart because we are a family and as such we want to protect each other and work for a bright future for those we love in this church. Why would I serve in an area that's got, I have no training in? Why would I add more to my already full plate? Why would I engage in what may become some of the most painful experiences of leadership in my life? Because we're a family. And as such, we will work to protect and to ensure a bright future for those we love. And so we come together around that. When I was pastoring in rural Saskatchewan, I remember a missionary coming to us. I don't remember his name. It was a Sunday evening service. I just remember the story that he said happened close to where he served. A toddler had gone missing in the jungle the day before, and people, individuals and groups were, were firing off in all directions and calling names and cutting shoots and looking underneath of everything to find this child, only to find nothing at the end of the day. As night fell, the animals of the jungle roared and groaned and screamed and hissed. The girl's parents, the others, they were terrified. The next morning, one of the elders who had noticed how random their search had been said, today we are going to join hands and go section by section through this jungle. They found what was left of the child at 10 a.m. in the morning, not far from the camp, and concluded that she had been killed the night before. And the anguished cry of her father was, why didn't we join hands sooner? You know, our text presents us with more than a mishmash of people who join hands to build a wall. It actually extends an invitation for us to join hands together now. Not to build a wall, not to find a missing child, but to enter a quest to find God's future for this church together as a family who love one another. Before we celebrate the ways in which we already are that, let me pray and then Jeremy will come up. Father, today is an invitation to participation. But it's also a day to celebrate those who have loved your church and have sacrificed and served her for months and years and decades, and we're so grateful for them. So even as you invite us to participate, we invite you to bless those who have sacrificed for you and to bless our celebration of those who have served you so well. For it's in the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.